Welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, welcome to to the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association podcast. Today we are covering tricuspid atresia. Specifically, we will cover the preoperative evaluation, decision-making for initial palliative strategy, and other key intra- and post-operative decisions, both at stage one and at stage two, and what to watch out for as we move through the palliative stages to and beyond Fontan. My name is Connor Callahan, and currently I'm spending my dedicated research time as the Kirkland Ashburn Research Fellow at the Congenital Heart Surgeon Society Data Center, based at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto with my home residency program being the general surgery program at Washington University in St. Louis. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. David Barron, who is our Chief of Cardiovascular Surgery here at the Hospital for Sick Children. Dr. Barron, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Connor. Pleasure to be here. For our discussion, let's start with the case. A one-day-old neonate is transferred to your center after the outside hospital noted an oxygen saturation in the mid-80s on room air. An echocardiogram is performed upon arrival, which shows tricuspid atresia with normally related great vessels. What other information would you want to know from the echocardiogram, and are there any other studies you would want? Additionally, are there any therapies that should be initiated prior to transfer or initially on arrival to your institution? Yeah, so I guess the first thing to say is these days, so many of these conditions are diagnosed antenatally prenatally so we may well have forewarning that this child is is, is coming to us and um and rather than it being a postnatal diagnosis but the management is still the same and the the default position really is to start the child on prostaglandin because uh it's it that's a pretty standard sort of management that any cyanosed uh, newborn uh, until you've really established exactly what the uh, true um, morphological diagnosis is. So your first advice maybe to your referring centre would be to start on prostaglandin and to uh, transfer them to you. And then the key is really understanding the important anatomical um, you know, uh, factors. So um, really it's the atrial septum which is your first question and your second question is the nature of the pulmonary blood flow so you want to so remember tricuspid atresia means there's no way that the systemic venous return can find its way back into the circulation unless there's a hole in the atrial septum uh, pfo and um, but then you have to understand uh, how the blood is getting into the lungs uh, is it completely duct dependent or is there a uh, a well-formed uh, native right outflow tract with a uh, pathway through, which means there has to be a VSD. So you have to know whether the ventricular septum is intact, whether the atrial septum is intact, and you need to know uh, what the nature of the pulmonary blood flow is. Great, so in this case, um, so in addition to um, the initial diagnosis of tricuspid atresia with normally related great vessels, the echocardiogram shows a restrictive atrial septal defect with left to right shunting, a very small restrictive ventricular septal defect with left to right shunting, with an atretic right ventricular outflow tract and a patent ductus arteriosus, which seems to be the source of his pulmonary blood flow. On arrival to the NICU, he is sitting in the 80s on room air with a prostaglandin infusion running. 
However, a few days later, his oxygen saturations begin to drop into the 60s and 70s. What is your concern in this point, and what would we do next? So, well, the, the atrial shunting has to be right to left in tricuspid atresia. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the, so your, con- your, your initial concern is, is really rest- is your, is your trying to get the child into a balanced condition. And the restrictive atrial septum is probably your biggest red flag early on because that's a, that's a limit to your cardiac output. You've got to be able to get your systemic venous return across your atrial septum. So, um, so if, you, if the child is becoming unwell or showing evidence of desaturation, your first concern is that the atrial septum is becoming restrictive and whether you're going to then need to uh, address that. Usually a balloon septostomy uh, in the cath lab or, or it can be even done at the bedside under echo control uh, in the ICU uh, is, your, is, is the simplest thing to do because usually in a neonate the uh, atrial septum is very flimsy and will be torn very easily and readily. Uh, but you do occasionally see a septum that's really quite muscular and thick and you can't get a good result uh, just with a balloon. So it may even need a surgical uh, septectomy. Right. And so what if, what if instead you have an unrestrictive atrial septum and you're, you're experiencing these issues with desaturation? So that's more likely then to be uh, something to do with your pulmonary blood flow. And if you're duct dependent, is the duct uh, becoming uh, narrow or closed down? Uh, usually on prostaglandin it won't, but uh, it can do. Uh, and you may also uh, have some more complex anomaly with the uh, pulmonary blood flow itself, such as the pulmonary arteries themselves could be small or uh, distorted, or you may have a narrowing at the site of duct insertion. You could even have discontinuous uh, pulmonary arteries. So you've actually got a limit uh, you know, to the uh, pulmonary blood flow itself. So that would be uh, the next thing that you need to consider. Right, and so I guess, so then what, what would force you to take this child to the operating room for a, for a BT shunt or even a ductal stent since there's some literature out there regarding that as, as an option for initial palliation? Yeah, so you've got a bit, so you, here we are, you're trying to, to get the child with a balanced uh, pulmonary blood flow. So in these, in these situations, you're, you're talking probably about a duct-dependent blood, right. blood flow, so there's, there's no or, or nothing useful in terms of anti-grade flow uh, across a native uh, outflow tract. So you're duct-dependent, and you really want to try and uh, establish a balanced circulation. And that really means trying to avoid over-circulating the lungs at the same time as provide them with enough flow. So traditionally, that's been done with a, 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 a Blalock-Tausig shunt. Um, and that's partly because we've just learned over the years that by using a, uh, you know, a Gore-Tex shunt of the right size gives you a fixed resistance to flow, but the right amount of flow. So it's a good way that we've come to learn in a neonate of guaranteeing, hopefully, the right amount of pulmonary blood flow. But it does so at the cost of a slightly flawed circulation with a diastolic runoff that you can't really control. So the alternative that's really come uh, around in the last, in the last sort of 10, 15 years is the option of ductal stenting, uh, which um, you know, equally uh, provides a systemic, you know, a systemic to pulmonary artery shunt, but by stenting it, it obviously ensures that there's a fixed uh, communication. You're no longer reliant on prostaglandin to keep the ductal patency. Again, getting the size of that stent is really important. 
So uh, your interventional cardiologist will tell you they often want to stop the prostate to allow the duct to start to shrink so they've got something for their stent to grip on. And the shape and the tortuosity of the duct is also really important in whether or not it's suitable for um, ductal stenting. And again, that's going to depend on the kind of experience uh, of your interventional cardiologists and how confident they are in being able to stent a tortuous duct. So getting the size of the stent right and the position is also really important. There's a debate between whether ductal stenting or BT shunt is the correct a way to manage these patients or which which gives us the uh, the best uh, solution um, and that debate is ongoing there's, there's there's a lot of enthusiasm to maybe even uh, develop a randomized trial because we really don't know what whether one is better than the other it certainly feels that avoiding surgery feels nice feels like it might be uh, a better option for the patient but at the same time it's slightly less controlled to try and stent the duct than it is with a BT shunt because the BT shunt we can really control the size and the length of the shunt to know that we've got better control of the pulmonary blood flow. You can certainly argue that uh, nature put the duct where it is for a reason and that having the source of systemic blood flow a little bit more distal uh, in the aortic flow may be more uh, protective to the risk of runoff, particularly to coronary steel. Uh, because a BT shunt will come off the anominate artery or maybe the subclavian artery which is closer to the coronaries in a way in the circulation and so there's more of a risk of diastolic runoff with a BT shunt than there probably is with a ductal stent. But as it stands at the moment you can almost take a choice between those two options. Right so let's say we we took this kid for for a BT shunt um, and so kind of in addition to the runoff issues, as you just described, what, what other things are you worried about in the initial um, first couple days postoperatively after placing a shunt in these patients? Well, certainly you know, I say getting the balance right is, is difficult uh, with the BT shunt. You're slightly at the mercy of the pulmonary vascular resistance. So it's very much um, a case of managing their post-operative care in the intensive care very carefully and being aware that uh, you know, interventions that, that may change the pulmonary vascular resistance may change the way in which the circulation behaves. So you have to ventilate uh, the children carefully, uh, avoiding overventilating them. So you don't want to drop their CO2 precipitously. And equally, you don't want to uh, ventilate them with too high FiO2 because a high uh, oxygen delivery may also suddenly drop the pulmonary vascular resistance and, and improve the, you know, so increase the pulmonary blood flow, but more importantly, suddenly increase the diastolic runoff in the circulation. So the most important things uh, in the first few days are managing the, uh, sh the shunted circulation and also uh, the other early risk is the risk of a sudden uh, shunt thrombosis. So you want to establish them on some form of anticoagulation to try and reduce that risk. Great. So let's say, let's say instead, so we're currently talking about a child who had an atretic outflow tract, no integrated blood flow into his pulmonary circulation. What if instead you had a setting where he had severe pulmonary stenosis and he had kind of the a small degree of integrated pulmonary blood flow that would be competing with either your shunt or your ductal stents. But of course that integrated flow wasn't, wasn't enough to keep them well saturated. Um, 
how do you address this competing pulmonary blood flow if you do at at this time of placing a BT shunt? Yeah, these are uh, these, so these are really uh, nutty questions that were difficult, you know, to know what exactly the right answer is, because there's certainly evidence that uh, if you've got competing flow into the pulmonary arteries, so a little bit of forward flow through a small pulmonary artery, and you've got your flow through your uh, BT shunt then that competitive flow actually may be a risk for early shunt thrombosis. Um, so there's a good argument just to tie off uh, and ligate the, the, the little bit of forward flow you have in this situation. So you really only have a single source of pulmonary blood flow and less risk of um, shunt thrombosis. So in general, I would personally feel more comfortable in just actually ligating the main pulmonary artery so you have just a single source of pulmonary blood flow. I mean, it is. It kind of feels tempting to leave them with with two sources as a kind of backup uh, in case the shunts should thrombose and you um, and you then got at least got something uh, going. But of course, the 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 corollary of that is you're increasing the risk of your shunt thrombosing simply by leaving them with the forward flow. And if you think about the physiology, because you've got tricuspid atresia, the forward flow through the uh, little pulmonary artery is kind of oxygenated blood uh, you know it's already uh, come come through from the left ventricle so it's not particularly valuable right. blood that's been put back into the lungs again so uh, there's no great sort of uh, circulatory benefit to keeping uh, that forward flow through the small uh, pulmonary artery so again probably if you if, if you know the child needs a bt shunt to give them enough flow uh, then you may be better just to ligate the forward flow Okay, great. Let's jump now to a third kind of scenario for this for this first stage. Let's say instead at the time in the newborn period, um, our patient's initial echocardiogram it shows a wide open right ventricular outflow tract and an unrestricted VSD to the point where he's actually able to go home and be followed for an outpatient for a little bit. Throughout outpatient follow up, he's been satting around ninety percent on room air. However, he's now stopped gaining weight, and there's concern for pulmonary circul overcirculation. What would your next step be at this point? Yeah, so again, it's an entirely plausible situation. You may, if you've got a big VSD and a well-formed main pulmonary artery, you can actually still have unrestrictive pulmonary blood flow in the setting of tricuspid atresia. Not so common, but certainly can happen. And you've got to remember that you know, because you've got an obligate mixing circulation, you know, the blood has to mix at the atrial level before uh, it leaves the heart. So to generate saturations of 90% or the low 90s, you've actually got to have quite a high QPQS, probably at least three to one mm -hmm. to, to get to 90%. So the child will be in a degree of, you know, of volume loaded, uh, volume loaded circulation and may have a degree of um, you know, over circulation and heart failure. So it's not, it's not unusual in that situation that you're gonna to have to do something to address that if they're over-circulating. And um, that's gonna to have to be a choice between banding uh, the pulmonary artery um, so that you limit the pulmonary blood flow and uh, restabilize the circulation, or you can even take a view that you would simply ligate the main pulmonary artery and give them a BT shunt to go back to that sort of circulation uh, that we were just discussing. But probably banding is gonna be the most likely thing that you're gonna recommend just to balance the circulation out. Okay, great. Um, 
And so again, to throw another twist on sort of the, these potential first stage scenarios. Um, so if we go back to our first child um, who had an atretic outflow tract, or actually let's say um, he had the severe pulmonary stenosis, what about when they have a concomitant lesion such as transposition of the great arteries, um, this being detransposition? Yeah, so you could also see uh, a detransposition uh, in the setting uh, of tricuspid atresia. So again, if you work your way through that, that means that the aorta is arising from your small uh, muscle-bound little right ventricle. And it may, there may well now, in this situation, actually be a, a risk or a limit to the systemic outflow because the systemic outflow has to come through a VSD and around the aorta. So that may, this, this may be a much more complicated situation. Usually the pulmonary artery, which remember is transposed and is arising from the left ventricle, is well formed and they've got unrestricted pulmonary blood flow. If the VSD is large, then usually the aorta is well, is well developed and, and completely normal in its calibre and dimensions. But if the, if, the, if the VSD is a little bit small, often the aorta hasn't developed that well and you may have a degree of aortic uh, uh, underdevelopment. Under so you may have coarctation or aortic arch hyperplasia and you're immediately drifting into the realm where you may actually need a Norwood procedure to safely reconstruct your kind of as part of your stage one management to create a balanced circulation. However, if the VST is large and the aorta is a normal size, then you're faced with a situation as we just discussed, where usually you've got uncontrolled pulmonary blood flow with a well-developed uh, main pulmonary artery, and again you would consider banding as your initial intervention in those patients. Great. Um, so thankfully, all of our, all four, or rather, of our initial patients do quite well. Um, and so I guess, so my question is, um, so we've gotten through this stage one palliation, and so then the next step for them is undergoing a cable pulmonary shunt. Um, what do you sort of counsel patients' families to look out for in this brief interstage period between stage one and stage two? Well, it's, it's really their most fragile time of life. Is, is whilst you're dependent on your sort of stage one physiology, particularly if that physiology is a BT shunt or a ductal stent. And um, you're really anxious to try and get the patients through to stage two really as soon as you reasonably can. Most people feel that's probably four or five months of age and that to go earlier than four months is probably uh, bringing it down too early because you really want to give the child a chance to have developed and grown a little bit and for the pulmonary vascular resistance to really have dropped away to a pretty normal level and to have given the pulmonary vasculature a chance to develop and grow, which makes them the best candidate for their stage two. So, that, so, so that's simply part of your rationale in waiting. But your biggest anxieties are that during uh, the time that they're dependent on the BT shunt, uh, the shunt can become narrowed and can fur up to a degree. It can get new internalization. Uh, or, or and, and sort of very sort of uh, micro deposits of thrombus and um, neointima on the inside of the shunt, which can narrow the shunt, or they can develop narrowing at the uh, particular sort of distal anastomosis. All of those things are going to limit pulmonary blood flow and may make the child uh, more cyanosed, uh, duskier in colour, uh, and uh, not appear so well. If they get really hypoxic, they'll actually become, uh, you know, breathless and uh, diaphoric and, and sick. Uh, with it 
Um, and equally, the atrial septum can become more restrictive as the weeks go by, particularly if they never required any initial intervention. And as the septum uh, stiffens up, they may actually become restrictive at the septal level, which will also limit their cardiac output, and the child will, 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 will quite rapidly become unwell uh, with low cardiac output. So those are the most important things to look out for. Great. Well, thankfully, those things don't happen to our patients we're talking about today. Um, so as they near this four to five month mark, as you mentioned, to bring them back for their cavopulmonary shunt. Um, so my next question is, um, what sort of preoperative workup are you looking for? What is, I guess, do you want a cardiac cath in all these kids before you take them to the operating room for their cavopulmonary shunts? Do you want an MRI or do you want one over the other? Um, what's kind of your preference um, that you want to know about before you go to the operating room? Yeah, I think, well, you, you, you need in any situation, regardless of the procedure you're planning, you need to be quite comfortable and confident that you have a clear uh, and up-to-date picture of the exact functional and anatomical situation that you're facing, so that you know exactly what the right thing to do is. And really in it's true that in, in, in these sort of situations, um, uh, if you've got clear, you know, a, a good clinical exam, uh, the most important thing is you want to know the pulmonary artery architecture and the pulmonary artery blood flow so that um, uh, the, the quality of three-dimensional imaging now is such that MRI uh, or, or NJCT if you prefer, but, but, but what most people talk about is the use of MRI uh, can give you enough information uh, to go ahead safely to stage two. And there are, there are many publications now that show that, that it's safe to, to, to plan your stage two based entirely on ECHO plus uh, MRI as your three-dimensional imaging. My personal feeling is, is that I would always want a cardiac catheter um, because I, I find that uh, angiography not only uh, gives you uh, the pulmonary artery pressures, but it also uh, will give you uh, clear uh, pictures of the branch pulmonary arteries and the runoff, the actual vasculature within the lungs, so you're comfortable that the, that the patients have got developed good quality pulmonary vasculature. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and a cardiac catheter angiography gives you all that information. So my, my preference is I would prefer that, and that's the kind of perhaps the, the gold standard or the old-fashioned way mm-hmm. of, 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 of wanting to have uh, for all your preoperative investigations. But you know, I think it is, it is fair to say now that unless there is something unusual, that an MRI will give you enough information of the pulmonary vasculature uh, that, that you'd be safe to perform if you're, if you're happy otherwise with the child. But remember, you also need to know ventricular function, and you're comfortable with that atrial septum are you quite comfortable that the atrial septum is wide open and that there aren't any other sort of unexpected lesions occasionally you may see something unexpected like mitral regurgitation in the setting of tricuspid atresia and obviously you want to know whether that's something you need to address or not so you do need a full functional anatomical assessment and the the kind of means in which you achieve that i think you know you can debate whether an mri or a catheter is is, is enough on their own okay great so now we're in the operating room and we're getting our preoperative transesophageal echo. Um, this time with our patient who had the atretic outflow tract, had the shunt placed in the neonatal period. Um, and so here um, we show a very mildly restrictive atrial septal defect, um, mild mitral valve regurgitation. 
And so I guess my question here is, um, you know, you brought up mitral valve regurgitation just now. Um, I guess the thought is, you know, with some mild mitral regurgitation, um, doing the cable pulmonary shunts would ideally offload some of that. And I guess my question for you is, what would what would prompt you to address something about it? Is it is it a specific grade, or is it is it kind of is it the characteristic of the, re, of the regurgitant jet? Maybe I guess what would make you kind of want to address the mitral valve at the same time when you're there for your cable pulmonary shunt? Yeah. So you know, they're not always easy answers. Or you know, what kind of black and white answers are these? I think um, you know as a, as a as a sort of general comment, if if it really is mild. And that the mitral valve looks structurally normal, then I probably wouldn't choose to intervene right. on, on, on the mitral valve. I think your, your comment that the atrial septum looks just a little mildly restrictive, well, that would be enough to worry me. And I would, as a default, pretty well always do an atrial septectomy if there was any concern that the atrial septum wasn't absolutely wide open. because. Your, your, it's your one opportunity when you're going to be in the chest you have the, and to open the heart and do a septectomy is a very simple and, and, you know, and, and uh, quick thing to do and yes it means you've got to put a cross clamp on and have a very short few minutes of, of uh, cardioplegic arrest but it would still always be my advice to do an atrial septectomy if there's any concern about the atrial septum the mitral valve is different I think if the you know unless I think the mitral regurg would have to be a grade of moderate or, or more, or you'd have to be clear that there was some structural abnormality with the valve to be to feel you had to really do anything to the mitral valve. Okay, great. Let's say instead, let's go back to our other patient um, who we saw early on, who um, they had the wide open right ventricular outflow tract, and we ended up placing a pulmonary artery band on them. When you're in the operating room at the time of your cable pulmonary shunts, um, what then do you do about the PA band that you placed um, as the first stage? Yeah, you know, these are, again, really you know, difficult questions, I think, to, to, to know exactly what the right answer is. You ha you're always in the back of your mind, this child is heading down a Fontan pathway. Right. So your absolute priority is to preserve best possible pulmonary vascular resistance and best possible pulmonary artery growth. Um, and... You know, with with providing them with sort of two sources of pulmonary blood flow in the setting of tricuspid atresia, it's difficult to know if there's any real benefit in continuing with two sources of pulmonary blood flow. It, it, it's true that a bit more pulmonary blood flow may mean you can delay the Fontan a bit longer because they're just going to have a bit more blood flow than they get on a pure Glen circulation. Um, so you may maintain them with a bit more pulmonary blood flow a bit longer. But remember, your priority is to keep the resistance low, and um, to really let the you know and and to really look after those pulmonary arteries. So with a pure Glen circulation and no additional source of flow, you know that you've got nice low pressures uh, in in the lungs and. Um, uh, and that um, there's no competition of flow, there's no uh, risk to sort of pulsatility in the gland circulation. So there's a good argument, again, for simply ligating the forward flow uh, completely, and they're entirely, you know, uh, uh, a pure sort of bidirectional gland circulation. Certainly, if you look back at some of the uh, data, uh, certainly from Paris, uh, in the sort of 90s, uh, there was a real sort of enthusiasm to try and leave 
extra anti-grade flow and it does mean you could probably delay the fontan but these children will still all eventually get progressively cyanosed and will still all eventually need uh, something to, to, to relieve their uh, limitation from cyanosis which means you'll probably end up with a late fontan which may be a higher risk fontan so uh, I, I think the argument to uh, just use it to delay the fontan is limited right uh, right and, and there may well be better uh, sense in simply ligating the main pulmonary artery so they've simply got a pure bidirectional gland circulation that means there's no extra volume load on the heart hopefully that gives you optimal ventricular function and there's no extra uh, volume load on the lungs uh, that may potentially uh, you know, not allow your pulmonary vascular resistance to be as low as possible okay great and then to add one more twist to this that we also talked about in the neonatal period um, in the setting of detransposition of the great arteries, um, if all you've done prior is either a shunt or a PA band, how does that make your stage two operation more complicated, if, if it does? In the setting of, the, of the, coming up to stage two, it, it may not do, uh, as long as your principles are the same. So again, first check, you know, get your imaging, get your make sure you're absolutely clear on the you know, the functional and the morphological status of, of you know, of the heart. Uh, and remember, in the setting of DTGA, you must have a completely unrestricted VSD to have a safe systemic outflow. Right. And it may be, you do occasionally see that what starts out as a good-sized VSD starts to get a bit smaller as the child's growing, and there's a risk that may become restrictive. So if that VSD looks like it's going to close down, even if it still looks okay at this time of the glen, it may be sensible to consider doing a DKS at the time of stage two to really guarantee your systemic outflow to the circulation. So that is an added question you're gonna ask when you're doing all your imaging and assessment for a child with TGA right. and tricuspid atresia, who may have had a, may, as you say, may have had a pulmonary artery band initially, but you may want to consider doing a DKS as part of their stage two. Uh, if they've really got a wide open, huge VSD, then that may not be necessary. Perfect. So thankfully, all of our patients do well after their glens. And so this is sort of to kind of piggyback off the interstage period again in the sense of, um, you know, so presumably we're in a much more stable circulation now. And so kind of two main questions for you are, one, um, again, when counseling the families, what are we looking out for in that glen fontan interstage that would be concerning to us? And then additionally, as you come to the time of Fontan, um, again, is it sort of a similar, you want a cath before you go to the operating room for Fontan or um, sort of anything else you'd want before in that interstage period? Yeah, so, I guess, so in general, the interstage between Glen and Fontan is a far more stable period and the, the, the circulation is much more robust and, uh, and dependable and um, the children aren't likely to become unwell acutely um, and uh, you know and, and glens you know don't have that same anxiety about thrombosing um, and in general as the child grows you know the glen grows with them so they they, they remain pretty well and, 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 and functionally well it's not to say that other things can supervene you know we've, we've mentioned you know unexpected things like change in ventricular function developing a mitral regurgitation it can happen um, but it, it's unusual uh, once you've got safely through the glen. So the period is pretty steady, 
And what tends to happen is as the child grows and become more active and they start to uh, race around and, and want to do more physically as they, as they grow, they become naturally more um, cyanosed because the relative contribution of the SVC flow to the IVC flow becomes less. So the trigger is usually a much more uh, uh, gradual to gentle decrease in their exercise capability driven by a drop in their oxygen saturations. So other than really monitoring their oxygen saturations, that's usually most people's trigger. There are certainly some uh, institutions or kind of institutional philosophies where uh, the plan is to perform the Fontana at a certain age rather than necessarily wait for symptoms to supervene. But in general, people wait for the child to start to become a little bit more symptomatic before planning the Fontana. You then asked about um, what about sort of pre-Fontan assessment? Right, yep. Uh, uh, same principles apply. You need a mm -hmm. functional assessment of the circulation and some objective, you know, anatomical or you know, physiological information on the circulation. And really, that's all about the pulmonary vasculature, the, the, um, the actual anatomy of the pulmonary arteries themselves, and you need to know pulmonary vascular resistance and transpulmonary gradient. So it's very difficult to get that information without a cardiac catheter. So still, for me, that remains my gold standard intervention. But again, you know, with an MRI where you take a single spot pressure of the of the pressure in the Glen circuit, you know, that's that's probably adequate in most uh, situations to give you the physiological information you need uh, because you're seeing the pulmonary vasculature, you're seeing the size and growth of the pulmonary vessels and you've got a one-stop one pressure of the, of the pressure in the gland. But I say, personally, I prefer to know exactly what uh, the atrial pressure is, so you know what the transpulmonary gradient is, um, and that you've got the, the, um, the, the pressure within the gland as well, and you've actually seen the quality of the pulmonary vasculature on an angiogram. One of the benefits now with modern MRIs, we're getting more and more information about flows, so you also get a lot of information on MRI now about but the flow in the glen, the flow in each branch pulmonary artery, the collateral flow from, uh, from you know, um, systemic collaterals. So you do get a lot more information now from MRI on its own. So it's close to being really a replacement for cardiac catheterization. But for me, I would still want a, a cardiac catheter with those invasive pressures. Okay, great. And so um, my last question here is, it's another kind of two-parter. Um, so the first question is, you know, so we, we go through our Fontan and, um, you know, ideally they're going to live a very long time after that. Um, so my first question is, I think, you know, what are kind of things you're watching out for in the initial post-operative period and then beyond longer term? And to kind of piggyback on that, you know, tricuspid atresia has often been described as the quote unquote um, ideal Fontan um, sort of anatomy and physiology. And so I was just hoping you would comment on, you know, what what you think about that statement? Um, I guess what kind of what kind of contributes to that belief? Yeah, so indeed, I mean, the Fontan is an amazingly really successful operation for you know patients with univentricular circulations, and um, but at the same time, don't you don't pretend it's a normal circulation, right? Yeah, it, it comes at a cost, and it comes at a cost of 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 high systemic venous pressure and all the problems that'll bring with it. Um, so in terms of the Fontan itself, I think it, it's, it's a fair statement to say that the extracardiac fenestrated Fontan 
is is kind of seen to be uh, the definitive or you know fontan circulation that we have at the moment is certainly the most commonly uh, performed type of fontan but there is still debate over the the role of a fenestration and whether an extra cardiac versus a lateral tunnel fontan uh, is the best long-term uh, sort of physiological uh, sort of technique to use and i think the the you know the extra cardiac convert it excludes your atrium from the high pressure um, so perhaps there's less risk of atrial distension in mm -hmm. the long term and therefore less risk of atrial arrhythmia and it means you can do your fontan without even needing a cross clamp so perhaps the, the, the sort of overall myocardial sort of stress for the whole process is less but there's little to choose between them and when you look at all the data in the literature as we gather it it's still difficult to really show there's any real difference between a lateral tunnel fontan and an extra cardiac fontan at the moment but I think you know current sort of best belief is that the extracardiac is probably uh, the best uh, or certainly the most popular sort of type of fontan that we have. The, you know, as I say, the, the things that we believe are really good for a fontan are you know are well developed um, pulmonary arteries and um, low pulmonary vascular resistance that has been nurtured and looked after as low resistance from day one, and that the um, the systemic circulation is as normal as possible. And there's no doubt that tricuspid atresia offers us that because in general, in tricuspid atresia, the systemic circulation is pristine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there have, you haven't had to intervene on the aortic arch or create a DKS, right. uh, which all potentially may cause aortic regurgitation, may have uh, may cause uh, limits to may cause it may have residual obstruction in the arch. All these things may prevent you from having an ideally loaded um, sort of systemic ventricle. We're, we're all pretty clear that having a morphological left ventricle is better for you than having a morphological right ventricle as your systemic ventricle. Right. Although interestingly, that's not completely uh, shown for definite in some studies but you know it's very difficult not to believe that's the case and to have a mitral valve as your um, as your atrioventricular valve in the setting of a single ventricle circulation so all these things mean that tricuspid atresia sounds like your best possible sort of substrate for uh, for a, a single ventricle circulation so all those things seem to tell us that tricuspid atresia should be your best possible substrate group for looking at fontans. I think that's why the CHSS study is so important in having picked out this cohort of patients as being a really important group of patients to look for, to learn more about the fontan, because these really should be our best fontan candidates. And if we've got some that aren't, we want to understand why it is that even within this really good cohort, there are some that may still not be as ideal as we'd like them to be. Excellent. Well, thank you, Dr. Barron, for taking the time to join me for this podcast and discussing the management of tricuspid atresia for our listeners. Um, sort of as we discussed, it can present in a very broad spectrum, and we could spend hours discussing sort of the broad array of clinical scenarios that can arise. Um, and specifically, um, this can include, but it's not limited to um, TA with transposition, as we discussed, um, but there are certainly other complex lesions that can, discuss, that can present at the same time. Um, including truncus, AVSD, double outlet right or left ventricle, among other lesions. Um, but anyways, thanks again for taking the time to join us.
Thank you. Thanks, Connor.